Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. This episode of Slam the Gavel is sponsored by CPS Protect Consulting Services. A child protective services case is one of the most frightening experiences for any parent. Don't face it alone. Face it with confidence with urgent assist by CPS Protect. You can have access to former CPS investigators to make sure you receive your rights and protect your family. If you're facing CPS involvement and aren't sure where to turn, their child welfare consultants can help you. Visit cpsprotect.com forward slash subscribe and enter the coupon code slam the gavel for 10% off your first year of urgent assist. And this is available in all 50 states. I have another announcement. Bradley's mother, Narcus Golan, passed away in, in the fall of 2022. Bradley is autistic and needs structured routine therapies he receives for his autism six days a week. However, Italy just entrusted Bradley to the Italian social services. If he is ruled to go back, he will face the next three to four years in the Italian foster care system, where he can't speak or understand the language. He will then be taken away from the only family he has ever known. Please call Governor Hochul at 518 518- Four seven four eight three nine zero. That's Governor Hochul, New York State, 518-474-8390, to please keep Bradley here safe in these United States. And also another quick announcement, go to pleasedoyourjob.com and sign the petition. That's pleasedoyourjob.com and sign that petition. I have a brand new guest on. I have Adam Dodge on. He is the co-founder of NTAP, Ending Technology-Enabled Abuse. Adam's work is characterized by his dedication to addressing the existing and future threats posed by technology to victims of crime and gender-based violence. He has written extensively on technology-enabled abuse, non-consensual pornography, co-authored a domestic violence advisory on the emerging threat of deep fakes, and created the first resource guide for victims of non-consensual deep fake pornography. His work is in the field of digital impersonation, has been featured in the Washington Post and Mashable. Adam spends a great deal of his time delivering innovative technology-enabled abuse trainings to victims, serving organizations and government agencies around the world. And um, I totally welcome you to the podcast. I'm so impressed with what you have done. You know, uh, thanks so much. <laughs> so, and you're also the fo- uh, former legal and technology director of Laura's House. And uh, you've led a department that has processed over 1,200 domestic violence restraining order cases annually. So you've been busy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's how I got sort of my foothold in in my work with with victims of of gender-based violence was at Laura's house. Mm -hmm. You know, how did you get involved in all this technology? Well, it was uh, a matter of necessity. At as you just sort of mentioned that at Laura's house we were processing and working with a very high volume of domestic violence restraining order cases, and what became very apparent was that technology facilitated abuse or technology enabled abuse was becoming ubiquitous in those cases. Mm-hmm. It was either something. You, you know, not too severe like text messages or 
social media direct messages that were being used to intimidate or exert power and control or coercive control over a victim, or it got a little more sophisticated often with concerns being voiced like, my partner is reading my emails or reading my tech me text messages, and I don't know how it's happening. Or I feel like I'm being monitored and followed everywhere I go. And for someone working at a domestic violence organization like myself and my colleagues, it was not a good feeling being able, not being able to act or respond or have a playbook when a victim reported they were being harmed online or via technology. You know, none of us got into the work for the money and the fame, right? They, we got into the work to help people and technology is really good at making it really hard to help victims. So when I sought out training for myself and my staff, it just didn't exist. I was able to get a cybersecurity firm in the area to come do or provide a pro bono training to the staff of my organization. And it was almost immediately apparent that this was not the right fit for us because they were focused on, you know, very sophisticated attacks and hackers and nation state actors attacking companies and businesses and banks. And that's just not what tech facilitated gender-based violence is. It's usually somebody who is not sophisticated at all, but has access to the victim's technology, apps, passwords, things like that. And so I set about creating the solution that I needed in that moment, which was a training for non-tech experts that work with victims. And when word sort of spread that I was doing this and it was having impact, other people began to reach out and ask me to provide trainings to them. And that's how I created NTAB. So how I got involved, that's how I got involved in the technology side of things. I'm not a technologist. I don't have a computer science degree. I'm a lawyer. I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't have any of that background. So, uh, but the, the big reveal is you don't really need to be tech savvy or a tech expert to do this work because at the end of the day, it's still the familiar forms of abuse that we're all used to dealing with and navigating just being manifested online and on devices and via apps. And when you look at it through that lens, um, the, the, the approach becomes, you know, much, much more achievable uh, mm -hmm. when you're not dealing with, you know, some super sophisticated attacker. And it's just somebody who has the, the same level of tech expertise that you do. Have you run across anyone with um, some really um, wild ways of getting into a person's phone or laptop that you've never seen before? Well, there's always unanswered questions sometimes. There are, there are certainly cases where we don't know how something is happening. And sometimes, because to really strip a, a device or down to its nuts and bolts to forensically determine how somebody is accessing the device without consent, those options are often unavailable and we simply focus on you know, safety protocols. But I would say that the way that, that we see people, the way that we see unsophisticated people doing really sophisticated things to access a victim's device without consent is the use of stalkerware. So mm -hmm. stalker, and stalkerware continues to evolve and develop. And some of these newer versions are things we've never seen before, but 
uh, stalkerware is, sorry, I thought I had my do not disturb on and I do. So I don't know why that, that ding came in. <laughs> I didn't hear it. <laughs> oh, you didn't hear it. Okay, no. good. Um, so stalkerware is a, 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 an app, a malicious app that can be placed on a device, usually by having physical access to the device. And once that app is planted or, or downloaded or added to a device, it disappears. But that doesn't mean it's dormant. What it's doing is it's essentially sending everything that the, that the owner of the device does on the phone to the person who installed it. And it can do things beyond that. It can activate the phone's microphone and turn it into a listening device. You know, it can take pictures without uh, the phone user's knowledge, you know, things like that. Real James Bond level stuff that is now, you know, no longer fantasy in a, in a James Bond movie, but is something that anybody could you know, purchase and acquire from the internet and and download into a device without a victim's knowledge. Uh, I know there's, you know, the, you're you've got these personality disorders that enjoy this. They they enjoy um, just going after someone, and uh, generally from I, I would think relationships that didn't work out, and they just don't want to lose the person. And, yeah, and they just continue to harass them. Which, you know, how do you ever get this to stop? Or can you? You probably can't. Well, I mean, it. you can. I mean, there are things you can do. Every situation's different, right? It's really no different than power and control or abuse dynamics in the physical world, right? You can't, you could get a restraining order. You can do all these different things, but getting it to stop is very difficult. And it's true with technology too. It's uh, it's about plugging holes and understanding how people, especially unsophisticated or just normal average tech users, will use the internet and technology to violate somebody's privacy and exert power and control over them. To give you an example, just with the stalkerware example, there's stalkerware has sort of a good news, bad news situation with it when you're when you're trying to address it. One, it's very difficult to verify whether stalkerware is on a device because it's it's very good at hiding, but it's much more achievable to remove it from a device. So by factory resetting a device, it should and and, and only reloading apps onto the device that you recognize it in the overwhelming majority of circumstances will remove stalkerware from that device. So a simple, and this is what I mean by you don't have to be a tech expert to do this stuff is, you know, factoring a resetting re, factory resetting device back to its factory settings usually does the trick. Um, and, and we're careful not to tell people to just, well, just go get a new phone, right? Because for a lot of folks, especially low income folks, that's not, that's not an option. And you're not really empowering them with tools to prioritize their digital safety in a meaningful way. That's something we really, really focus on here at NTAB is getting people to treat their digital safety like their physical safety, because we just don't, there's a, there's a real wholesale lack of understanding of what digital safety even means. Mm -hmm. um, and even, and we're even further away from sort of 
community-wide adoption on how to prioritize our digital safety in a meaningful way. And so that's something that we're really pushing to, to, to sort of develop the skills and instincts for folks to, to really feel safe and be empowered to feel safe, whether they're online or offline. Well, even if you get a new phone, you download the stuff from your old phone into the new phone. So you're still stuck with that app. No. So that's why I said uh, to only download the apps you recognize because an app, a stalkerware app, one probably won't show up um, in the, in the backups, uh, in the cloud backup. But even if it does, we just want to make sure that folks recognize every app um, and understand what it does before they reload it onto their phone. Because, and if it's something they don't recognize, um, then, you know, that's a very good indication that they shouldn't put it back on their device. And, right. and that's a way to empower people to, to keep their devices safe, especially if they run into that situation in the future, they want to have that tool and that, that skill in their, in their back pocket. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you see that this, this causes a lot of PTSD, CPTSD, uh, yes, it's so something that I focus on pretty heavily in my work is tech enabled trauma and how this type of trauma, trauma experienced from tech enabled or tech facilitated violence is a is a different animal. It's very it's a very unique form of of trauma experienced by victims that and I'm no I'm no I'm not certified to give trauma informed trainings, but what I do provide is insights into tech-enabled trauma that people can use to incorporate into their existing trauma-informed practices. Because the unique thing about tech-enabled trauma is if you're being abused or harassed or intimidated via device that you have to rely on to survive and thrive, then you're constantly being put in a state of re-traumatization, right? Every time you use the social media platform that's also being used to harass and bully and stalk you, you're putting yourself in a in a in a space that doesn't symbolically represent your trauma, but literally represents your trauma. And we don't usually see that in the physical world. We don't see, you know, a victim of sexual violence in the physical like have to walk down the same dark alley or the same alley where the thing where that occurred 50 times a day, right? That would be, you know, <laughs> that would be the opposite of trauma informed, right? So but with our devices, and because we have an overall lack of understanding of how tech-facilitated abuse works and tech-enabled trauma as a result, and this sort of reliance we have on our devices, it 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 creates sort of a recurring trauma response, um, and and is really fertile ground for re-traumatization. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you tell people, you know, maybe go talk to someone, or are they able to to do that at Laura's house? Well, I'm not at Laura's house anymore. Um, and it, they never, they don't have a technology director there anymore. But but the answer is yes. I would argue that any community-based or victim-serving organization is a resource for victims of tech-facilitated abuse because you know, whether the abuse is happening online or offline, it's still abuse. And if that organization has mental health services um, or counselors or therapists there, um, or, or just people who need support like advocacy or case management, then then absolutely, yes. You don't have to be able to unmask and demystify every challenge that a victim's having related to their technology to help them process the trauma. And so, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I provide a lot. I train a ton of nonprofits to navigate 
digital safety in a meaningful way along with, you know, the military and law enforcement and judges and a bunch of different folks. But um, what I'm really pushing them to do is, hey, don't you don't have to create a whole new skill set here. Just just make a pivot, a small adjustment to what you already doing to serve or work with victims to also include their online experiences. And so it would be the same with technology enabled abuse and trauma. You know, it's be open to the fact that having an intimate image shared without consent is a devastating act. Um, being sent an unwanted nude image is cyber flashing, which is, a, which is sexual violence, you know, really legitimize these forms of abuse as being as serious as any other form of abuse. And as a result, as serious as any other form of trauma. And when we start from that place, we can really help survivors, regardless of whether we feel comfortable navigating or answering questions about technology. Because at the end of the day, tech facilitated violence is much less about the tech and much more about the violence. Definitely. Tell me about the judges. What do you talk to them about? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've trained thousands of judges uh, in just a couple of years, actually, um, because they're very interested in. So I talk to judges about a variety of different things. Uh, one aspect is about uh, an emerging emerging issues with related to technology and abuse and the and the impact on on evidence. So we're living in an age now where any buddy can fabricate videos, edit, modify videos, insert people into videos, mm -hmm. clone voices, create fake images with, you know, using an app or a, a website and, and just simply clicking a button. So it's very easy. So what I, what I often will talk to judges about on that front is really demystifying or, or explaining what the, the landscape looks like when it comes to manipulating photos, videos, audio, things like that. And then helping them think about, think through ways, whether it's, you know, authentication or laying foundation of these things. We're used to believing what we, what are, we're, we're seeing is believing, hearing is believing. That's sort of been, you know, a, an old standard, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's no longer the case. And so if somebody tries to enter into evidence a video or a voicemail that purports to you know support their their arguments we need to look deeper because it's too easy to fabricate that now so if somebody is saying look here's this voicemail i got from the party to be restrained in a restraining order case and it's them threatening me and threatening to harm our children and all these different things if i'm that judge and I have an awareness that it's very easy to impersonate people's and clone their. I mean, Apple's Apple is coming out with a new operating system in the fall that's going to have a clone your voice feature. So it's literally going to clone your voice, and if people you know, and will allow text messages to be listened to in your voice that that, that and things like that. So you know, our voices are. Um, you know, low hanging fruit these days, and so but. If a judge is unaware that this technology exists, then they may they may allow that evidence to come in over the objections of other people saying, well, that's not me. I never sent that voicemail, left that voicemail, which they hear all the time. Right. I didn't do that. That wasn't me. I, uh, you know, denial, 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 denial. But we need to pair that 
with the with an understanding that actually it's that's that's a that's a legitimate concern and we need to look at phone records to see when when was the voicemail left does the length of the voicemail match the phone records right like uh show me on your phone what you know is the is the voicemail being introduced as a separate audio file or is it directly from the the, the person's phone you know where where is this coming from? We have we can't we have to look at secondary forms of verification of ed- audio and video evidence today, because it's 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 where we're going. And the last thing I want to see is people submitting evidence and and decisions being issued based on that evidence, mm-hmm. uh, simply because the judge was unaware that the technology existed. So it's a lot. I do a lot of that, and then also just demystifying and. I use the word demystifying a lot, but uh, sharing how tech facilitated domestic violence works today from, you know, impersonation online to unauthorized access of a victim's account and how to verify if that is what's going on. You know, you don't have to have a technical person to verify if, you know, another party is in the vic- getting into victim's accounts, understanding how catfishing and impersonation is really taking leaps forward. Um you know, non-consensual tracking, how people are tracked without their knowledge or consent, and how judges or lawyers or advocates or law enforcement or military personnel or or folks that work in higher education can can actually have agency in those moments and verify with confidence and understand with confidence um, whether or not what is being alleged is true. And so that those are the ways that I approach um you know, those trainings with judges. So judges can feel more comfortable talking about those things. So judges can know, okay, what's being said right now, I know from this training is something that is happening and is not as far-fetched as I otherwise would have believed. And I know what kind of questions to ask or probing questions to ask to, to, to learn whether or not what they're alleging, you know, holds those allegations hold water or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, I wouldn't know where to start with that with with all of that especially with that ai and the voice um you know uh, you know just mimicking your your voice if you you answer the phone um they can just oh yeah take take your voice oh well there's already yeah and there's a lot i mean microsoft's voice cloning tech needs 3 seconds of of audio of your voice to clone your voice so it's it's very easy to get the audio um to clone somebody's voice and so yeah we're we're, we're worried I mean, I'm worried about this on a lot of fronts. I think the the group that is going to be hardest hit by voice cloning are um, seniors, older adults, older um, on the elder abuse front from scams. And we're already seeing people effectuating financial scams, targeting older folks um, by impersonating a loved one. And and which this is already happening. Hey you know, I'm calling, I'm a lot, you know, I'm so-and-so calling from, you know, whatever this Arizona jail, your grandson is here. Uh He can't reach his parents. Uh, He needs $2,000 to be Western union to this right now. Um, I'll have, once that's done, we can, we can, he can make his phone call. He can do these things and, and people are doing it. Right. And you know, online is a very accessible way to do that too. So we're, we live in the most hyper-connected time of, of in human history. And so, you know, folks who are potential victims of financial crime and, and, or, you know, tech facilitated financial crime and who are older, 
you know, they've got time on their hands, they're online, they've got assets. And so that is a very, that's why, you know, financial crime and elder abuse in the digital age are, are, you know, very, very problematic right now. Yeah, that's too bad because actually, you know, my mother fell for that. She got a call and uh, she ran to my father. I mean, she was like 80. Yeah. <laughs> she says, you know, our, our grandson's in prison. And my father's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and he, he took the phone and said, who is this? And they hung up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not making that like, you, yeah, and you usually when I tell, <laughs> I would say 50% of the time I tell one of the, like talk about tech facilitated elder abuse. Somebody says, oh yeah, my parent or my a parent of a friend had this happen to them. And so it's just going to get worse. And I'm not, I want to be very clear. I'm not a doom and gloom person. I'm not, I don't lead with fear and try to scare people into doing things. I just want to raise awareness about these issues because at the end of the day, Awareness is really critical with this emerging technology stuff because that can prevent a lot of this from happening. You know, we need really everybody, but if we're going to stick with this, you know, elder abuse example, older folks need to have a healthy skepticism that when they get a call from somebody um, asking them for money or asking them for personal information, that they need to proceed with a little bit of caution. And, you know, historically or currently, we do that by saying, hey, if you get a call, from somebody saying that, you know, they work with your bank or they're calling about a, a child or a grandchild, you need to hang up and call your grandchild, you know, make, right. make sure. But what we're not doing is we're not telling them. And if, but if it's your actual grandchild calling and it's their voice and they're saying, grandma, I, here's my, I can't get all my parents. I need this money. Like, can you please Venmo me this right now or whatever it is? Um, you know, we're not because we haven't raised awareness about how these scams are evolving. People are soon will will fall for are more likely to fall for them. So that's why raising awareness is so important. Um, because you know, typically it's hey, if you get this call, call your grandson and make sure that they're not in jail and that they you know, and because if they answer, then you know. But people who get the call from their grandson are not going to then call their grandson and make sure it's them because they don't know that the technology exists to clone voices. So it's, it's really, I'm just, I'm constantly shouting this stuff from the rooftops because yes. I want more people to know about yep. it. Yeah. And, uh, and who would have thought, you know, even, even with the non-consensual deep fake pornography, that too is just as horrific as this AI stuff. Yeah. And it is AI. I mean, tech deep fakes are created. Are, we have artificial intelligence to thank for deep fakes. And, you know, people often look at deep fakes and, you know, if you read about them in the news, very often it's about fake news concerns or political interference, but it's a violence against women issue. People are inserting women and, and minors and girls mm -hmm. into pornography without their consent. Deep fakes, just so your audience knows, is a, set, is a form of face swapping. So you take, uh, if I upload a photo of one photo of a woman um, to one of these deep fake websites, it will take her face from the photo and swap it onto the body of a performer in a pornographic video. And when you press play, it now looks like the victim from the photo is participating in sex acts in the video. It's, it's her face. It's not her body. And, um, hmm. and, and that's, you know, 
something that I've been talking about since basically it came out in 2017 um, and trying to sound the alarm about this. And now it's becoming more main because it's getting easier to do. More people are aware of it, but it's a, it's a deeply disconcerting issue because historically to, to share an intimate image of somebody without their consent or distribute it without their consent, they needed to have either shared an intimate image with you or you needed to have obtained it somehow. Um, but you were, there needed to be, an authentic intimate image or video that existed in the world. And now with this technology, we're all potential victims because you don't need authentic material anymore. You just need a photo of them. And thanks to social media, you know, our photos are everywhere, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's LinkedIn or any others. Um, Cause a lot of people think, well, I don't have a social media and I'll ask, well, do you have LinkedIn? Yeah, I have LinkedIn. Okay. Well then your photos out there. <laughs> so, um, so it's probably, you know, the, the manipulation is, is deeply problematic when it comes to that stuff. And also, also in a courtroom, that would be a difficult thing to prove. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenge I get, because I was sort of in early on the deep fake stuff, I get a lot of, inquiries from from folks on how to address this and and a lot of them will point to well we don't have a lot of laws around deep fake you know pornography consensual deep fake pornography and that's true they're working on a federal law and, and different things but you know i don't put a lot of eggs in that basket because that law will be pretty ineffectual if we don't have means to enforce it and so and this is kind of true with a lot of tech facilitated abuse and tech facilitated crime is, and this is not, and in no way am I dunking on or slamming law enforcement or ju our judicial institutions. They are just undertrained, understaffed and under-resourced to properly mm -hmm. address all the tech facilitated and cybercrime um, cases that come through their door. Like they're just not. So finding out who created and distributed deep fake pornography anonymously online is very difficult. And even if you have the laws to, to enforce it. And, and I would say my, my take on, on uh, it's great to, to have those laws, but I'm not a huge fan of creating new laws uh, around technology facilitated abuse, which might sound like counter to my whole mission statement, but what I'm really trying to get folks to look at through is is not look at this as a tech issue but look at it as a it's a stalking issue it's a harassment issue it's you know it's whatever you know sexual violence and we have laws for that stuff and whether someone's being stalked it really shouldn't matter whether it's happening online or offline like i don't think we should have a cyber stalking law and a stalking law i don't separate my life into my cyber life and my offline life it's just life and so uh, and I, frankly, I don't think law enforcement and judges want to have to constantly be learning and about and, and getting up to speed on new t laws every year because we're not becoming less reliant on technology. New technology is going to continue to come out. AI, virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, robots, like all this stuff is yeah. really going to happen. And uh, we don't need special specified laws for each one of those things. What we need is you know, more education and awareness about how to navigate those issues and use the laws we already have on the books to address them. Yeah. How often do you get to talk to these judges about this stuff? Like pretty how? often, pretty mm -hmm. often. Um, I'm a, I'm the, the bio you have, I probably should have sent you a more updated one, but I'm, 
<laughs> I'm, facu- I'm, I'm faculty for the National Judicial College, for example. So I do a lot of, uh, I reach a lot of judges through, it's judges.org, but I read a lo- reach, re- reach a lot of judges through the National Judicial College. I work with a lot of st- different states and they're, um, I, I work with about eight different uh, states uh, to, to educate their judiciary and their staff and things like that. And yeah, I've gotten to do some cool stuff. I get to advise the White House Task Force on Online Abuse and Harassment. I get to work with the World Economic Forum Digital Justice Advisory Committee. Like there's a lot of a lot of people that are interested in this issue. Um, and, and there's a lot of ways to approach it from a macro level and then also from just like a, a training level as well. Mm-hmm. Well, do you get calls from people um, saying they've got these problems and they need help or do you, re- do you refer them to someone else? Yeah, I do get those calls. I'm not. So it's as a as a former advocate, it's really hard for me to say no to those. But I'm not an ad. We're not a direct service organization. We're a training and education organization. So my goal is to upskill and empower and resource organizations that work with victims to help them when they're being harmed online and via their technology. And so when someone reaches out to my, to me through my website, uh, we refer them to organizations that, that are doing that work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so no, I, I, if a client organization that I've trained in the past reaches out for insight about a case, I'll help them. Um, but I don't just help. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just don't have the bandwidth, unfortunately, to, to help people individually. Now, the judges that you're training, do you think, you know, that maybe their dockets are too full and they don't get to look at this evidence as closely uh, when it comes to, you know, the voice recognition and this deep fake pornography? Hmm. Well, I can say without a doubt that judges' dockets are too full. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think, a universal. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it depends. I think my hope is because they care about this stuff and they don't want the wool pulled over their, their eyes. And they, they don't want to feel like they're out of their depth when dealing with a potential issue. And so the feedback that I'm getting has been really positive from these trainings and they're very interested in um, you approaching whether allegations of, you know, deep fake pornography or, concerns about the fabrication of audio or manipulation of audio and video evidence. They're, they're interested in looking at that more closely because they see the risk. Um, and I, and, the, and I just, yeah, I just don't want anybody judges included, but really anybody who works or, or comes into contact with the life of a victim to, to not be able to address something because they have never heard of it before. Right. It's like, well, we can at least have an intelligent conversation or a, an informed conversation about it, even if you can't verify that in a restraining order case, the party to be restrained is the one who created and distributed it. Um, you know, they can at least point them to resources to get it taken down or, or something. Mm-hmm. Now, are these family court judges or civil criminal? All, all, all. Yeah. A total mix. So yeah, municipal, civil, criminal, family law prosecutors, uh, yeah, DAs, public defenders, really anybody. Um, that it's it's sort of a universal, you know, training and presentation. The presentations that I do, it's not. Um, I mean, the the trainings I do for judges are different than I would do for for other folks. But generally speaking, they're 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 pretty homogenous because I think we all just 
we just don't have, nobody really has a very good handle on this stuff. And so we just need a baseline from which to operate. And so I try to keep my work uh, pretty consistent across all, all, you know, across my client base so that, you know, everybody's getting the same information. Mm-hmm. I, and that'd be hard to juggle because every time you turn around, there's new technology coming out <laughs> almost every day. Yes, I mean, it's a lot. It? How fast <laughs> is it coming out? Is it like uh, well, recently? Uh, so that's what I often tell people is the great thing about my work is I never run out of stuff, new stuff to talk about. And the 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 terrible thing about my work is I never run out of new stuff to talk about because it can be an exhausting thing. So, so yeah, right now we are in a in a. A, a season of technology that has me very focused on emerging issues because of uh, sort of this artificial intelligence renaissance that we find ourselves in. And chat GPT, uh, in particular, large language, LLMs, large language, learn, or large learning models, excuse me, that can do all these, you know, superhuman things. I mean, ChatGPT, you can ask it to write a brief. You can ask, ask it to, you know, do all sorts of things and it'll do it well. You know, you still, it still needs a human editor, but it will create things that, that you just can't even believe. And so people are already using this technology um, to build apps and to do all sorts of different things. It's, but it's how we get, you know, people are using it, uh, not ChatGPT necessarily, but are using, um, well, you know, it, there are also, so there's chat GPT, but the, which is a chat body essentially, but then there are also these, these image websites like Dolly and, um, and others that allow you to, will create imagery from a descript, from a text description, right? So it's like, give me, I want a, a photo of a teacup poodle riding a unicycle. I want it to appear as a sepia photo from the 1800s and I want it to be in Paris and it will create something that looks wholly authentic. It may take a few tries, but it's getting better, wholly authentic of the, and, and exactly what you described. And so what's unfortunate is, you know, that, that kind of technology also allows people to create, you know, intimate imagery, um, of real people and of fake people. So one thing, and this, it, I've been talking about this for a long time, trying to warn people about it, and now we're still seeing it start to happen. But the FBI just released, recently released, a, um, like a bulletin that they're seeing an uptick in people using fake nude imagery of victims to blackmail them, particularly minors. So they are creating a fake nude of a minor who they're grooming online and then are using that image to either threaten them by saying, we're going to release this. No one's going to believe it's fake. And, you know, your parents are going to get arrested and you're going to get thrown out of school and um, unless you do X, Y, Z. Right. And so, and I've been warning about this. Oh. <laughs> it's what I, I, I have to, I have to, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I, you know, when it starts happening, you know, on one hand, I'm hopeful that people will start taking it seriously. And on the other hand, I'm frustrated because I've been trying to get people to take it seriously for a long time because you don't have to be clairvoyant to see the, see what's coming down the road. You just look at any new technology and ask the question, how will be this, 
How will this be misused or weaponized to harm victims? And anybody who works with victims can can come up, can see the future because it's not hard to tell, you know, somebody who works with victims of sexual violence or or advocates, hey, if there was a technology out there that could could swap somebody's into a video using only their photo, how do you think it would be used? Like we'll get to pornography pretty quickly, right? It's not, it's, 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 you don't, I'm not a tech expert. I'm not clairvoyant, but I'm, it's, it's just asking that question has allowed me to see, you know, into the future. Um, and I'm, and I'm really want others to do the same because uh, it, we're just being inundated with new technologies. I mean, there's a new app out uh, uh, that, will create a virtual version of it's a dating app that'll create a virtual version of yourself mm-hmm. uh, and and then create basically a bot or a chat bot that's you and so when you match with somebody online you can ask their chat bot which is essentially them questions about themselves and so it's this like weird and so this is where we're going where where people are uh, you know, using this new technology fast and furiously to to develop things that I, you know, I think are deeply concerning. Um, but everybody's just so excited to use the use and harness the power of this new AI technology that they're like social media platforms before them. They are not stopping to think about the safety ramifications. They are just going, you know, pedal to the metal. Mm-hmm. trying to get some technology to market to get funding and they're not thinking about how it could be misused. I mean, this company that came out with the app that I was just describing, they're like a four or five person team uh, creating this company. So if somebody reports abuse, they don't have the infrastructure, the trust and safety in- infrastructure to prevent or navigate or respond to to people using that to harm others. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, needs to become industry standard in my opinion, but mm-hmm. it, accountability accountability is is unfortunately absent from a lot of these platforms because Mm -hmm. they are legally they have legal they have immunity in the eyes of the law because of section 230 of the communications decency act they are not liable for what people do with their technology or post on their platforms or um, things like that and so they can just say look we didn't create that nude image of you like somebody used our technology to create a nude image of you. Mm-hmm. And the argument to say, well, you should have had infrastructure in place to prevent people from creating it, but that's, you can't sue them based on that. So until, and a lot of people try to are trying to use the courts to, to effect change, but the reality is we need a legislative solution or an amendment to section 230 rather than, but you know, the courts will are, are, are consistently, um, passing on on doing that they think it's it's the legislature's job you know has anyone i'm sure someone's come forward to the legislator to do something about this oh yeah i mean it's honestly it's a bipart there's a there's bipartisan support to different reasons but uh you know there's bipartisan support to to modify section 230 and erode some of the immunity that that these tech platforms enjoy you know but how long will that take for that to go in effect to do something about this do you think uh your 
it <laughs> if I could forecast how a divided Congress <laughs> yeah. would would uh, get to you know some kind of unified decision on uh, and get a law passed, then I yeah. you know I would be working in you know as a political influencer. But um, no, I have no idea. You know, hopefully, I think if something gets passed, I think it'll get instituted relatively quickly because mm-hmm. I think people real recognize how quickly technology moves and they want to put some some guardrails in place sooner mm-hmm. rather than later yeah should parents be writing to a, their legislator about this now sure yeah um i mean i do a lot of work with parents i have a i have a whole uh course for parents of kids age k, k through fifth grade it's uh, the techsavvyparent.com and you know parents are frustrated and they are disempowered and they are overwhelmed and they know that they they need some help. They need some support. They can't just all be on parents to make sure that kids are safe on these platforms. It needs to be, you know, a group effort. It's just that, you know, I, I use a lot of analogies in this work and, you know, the reality is in the physical world, we have a lot of guardrails and support. Um, to prevent kids from getting into dangerous situations or being exposed to content they're not developmentally ready for. I mean, uh, the, if you ask a parent, hey, are you worried that your eight-year-old is going to leave school, buy a ticket to an R-rated movie and watch the movie? And the answer is no, because one, that difficult for them to get out of school, buying an R-rated ticket, is not, they're not, you know, even if they somehow are able to do it online, going an unaccompanied minor trying to watch an R-rated movie they're going to, someone's going to see this probably and stop it from happening. But online, all those guardrails that we rely on sort of evaporate, right? They're just not there in the same way. And it puts the, it puts what is a shared sort of responsibility in the physical world in our communities, puts that responsibility wholly on the shoulders of parents mm-hmm. who, by the way, didn't grow up with this technology. So don't even have a frame of reference or understand what kids are experiencing growing up in the digital age. So it's, it's it's a real perfect storm, which is why, you know, I'm trying to support parents of the tech savvy parent because, you know, we have to start preparing them early for digital adolescence because it's just a different, we can't, you know, parenting needs to undergo its own small adjustment because, you know, focusing parenting and, and raising kids for a world that the way the way parents are doing it today kind of just assumes they're never going to be online because that's the way we've always done it. And then in middle school or late elementary school, they start demanding a phone and it's like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And it's, well, this, we know this happened again, you don't have to be clairvoyant to know that this is going to be an issue. And I'm trying to gently sort of insert some tools and, and approaches that parents can take to help, you know, their kid to prepare their kids so that, you know, I, I get this question a lot. Well, how old is, when should kids get their own cell phone? Right. And the reality is it's like when they're ready and, mm-hmm getting them ready sort of, I think, starts in elementary school and helping them, you know, navigate how to, how to identify and, and basically how to have some consistency with how they behave online or offline. Cause kids will do and say things online that they would never do in the physical world. They'll take risks online that they don't take in the physical world and that's unsafe. And so, but they're growing up online without a lot of guidance or supervision from their parents or from the platforms. And so they, um, so, and that's what we get. 
and it doesn't have to be that way, but we, you know, parents need some support. So I think platforms need to do their part and, you know, parents need, need some, need a plan, which I try to try to help with on, on that side of things. Yeah. When did you start the techsavvyparent.com? Uh, recently, actually, I just launched it in the fall, last fall. Um, so it's relatively new, um, but it's, it's designed to help parents, you know, teach like an example is parents are, are pretty more than ever, like in the, in the, in the past, parents are teaching their kids about consent, right? Saying giving or getting permission. And, you know, if you don't want to give your uncle a hug, like that's okay. Instead of forcing them, because if we force them, then we're telling them, well, if somebody wants to do something, it's not up, you know, with your body, you need to, you know, and then they get in relationships. And so it's sort of not how we want to be teaching consent, but it always focuses on physical examples and body autonomy, autonomy usually. And those lessons don't serve kids once they start getting online, because that's one, they're not going to instinctive, they, they don't make sense in online spaces. And so what we need to do is also in those same, in the same breath, give them guidance on how to navigate giving and getting permission when the person's not standing in front of you, right? Because it's equally as important, right? And our boundaries don't, shouldn't change online or offline or, or practicing empathy, right? And is something we typically focus on physical cues and physical examples. But then the internet, I call it the empathy vacuum. You know, it just sort of vacuums up all the, all the cues we rely on to teach kids empathy. And we wonder why they change their behavior online, right? And it's because, and so I'm trying to not overwhelm parents, but just say, hey, you're already having these conversations, just expand them a little bit. And you'll you'll help build the foundation so that when kids do get to middle school or whenever they're ready want to start asking for a phone you're for, you're not starting from scratch you already know okay i've already laid the foundation for them to navigate unsafe people online or mm -hmm. uh, bullying or empathy or consent or have a relationship you know healthy friendships and relationships and all the while you know ensuring that kids will come to you. So by having, because if you're just silent on it, kids are not going to look to you as a parent, as the person they should go to if they run into a, you know, trouble or, and we want parents to be that, that port in the storm and that, that's mm -hmm. that, that safety net for them. And by starting early and talking to them about online and offline life, or just, or, you know, if, even if they're just in first grade, you can just talk about bot consent in ways that don't involve somebody being in the room. Like, oh, if somebody gets up and leaves to go to the bathroom, is it okay to eat the food on their plate? It's like, mm -hmm. well, no, you know, and it's just, it gets them thinking about permission when the person's not in front of them so that they will can rely on those lessons, you know, in online spaces as they get older. Yeah. That's just so much for parents. Uh <laughs> I know. I know. <sighs> So I try, that's why I always say small adjustments. It's not like now you have to start doing all these different things. It's like, yeah. no, no, no. We're, it's all the same stuff we're already doing as parents. We just need to, to, to make some small adjustments. And because parents spend a lot of time online, they can have those conversations because we're all, you know, we're all on our phones every day, all day, you know, and we're online and we know how to, we know what these things are. So. And we're also using our phones as laptops. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's for everything. Right. Where the idea is for us to use our devices and our our accounts for all things. I mean, Google and Apple, for example, are trying to they just don't want to be your email. Right. Google doesn't want to be email. They want you to use it to surf the Internet. They want you to use it to manage your passwords and to 
get directions and to do all these things, right? They want it to be sort of your one-stop shop. So we're, um, you know, we're, 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 I think people are more tech savvy than they give themselves credit for. Mm-hmm. And then that includes parents. Mm-hmm. But when you said, uh, you know, some of these apps, they, they can write your brief for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that, boy, that would have been handy in 2016. Uh- yeah, you got to be careful, though. So <laughs> when I said you need a, a human, that's so I can't believe I say this now. But yeah, you need a human to be involved in the, the brief writing process. Because yeah. uh, there was a case out of New York where plaintiff's counsel was representing uh, a victim who was suing American Airlines because he said he got his leg uh, injured from a, an errant food, food cart or drink cart. And he submitted a motion and quoted a bunch of cases or cited a bunch of cases. And the counsel for American Airlines said, judge, we, we can't find any of these cases. Mm-hmm. So the judge had his, his staff attorney try to find them and he couldn't find them either. And when they asked plaintiff's counsel what's going on here, he said that he came clean and said that he had had chat GPT do all his research and help him write the brief. And he didn't check its work. And they were like, they were actual, they looked like authentic sites with quotes and citation number, everything. And it had hallucinated these cases to support his arguments. And so you don't, you gotta be, it's not, you know, the technology is not there yet, but there's, you know, p- lawyers are using, people are coming out with tools for lawyers to, to, for doc review, like find every mention of this, find anything that will suit this argument, find any time they, you know, they try to, you know, and it's helpful for finding those needles in a haystack. It's like, oh yeah, this one line email mm-hmm. you know, sent three years ago is an admission, right? So it's just, uh, but you don't want to totally rely on the technology because they may miss something. Well, and yet you have to double check the work. Yep, I it's mean, like a, it's like be, it's like having a, a first year law student, a first year associate do it, right? Like you're mm-hmm. not just gonna let them write some, do the research and write a brief, you know, or or motion, and then just submit it without checking it over first, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's sort of the same thing here. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Um, what you do, you know, um, you know, with some of these parents that have horror stories, mm. you know, I'm sure you've heard some horror stories. I mean, you don't have to tell them, but if you want, but you know, it's out of control. Yeah. You know, growing up in a digital world as a kid, you know, you're getting, they're getting exposed to things that, you know, they're, they're, they're just not developmentally ready for, you know, they're getting inundated with content and relationships and situations that, you know, a 25 year old isn't ready for, okay. right. And they're getting it at seven, eight years old and it's happening sort of in secret. And so the parents don't know that, you know, eight and nine year olds are, are sending nudes to each other, you know, and that's happening. I mean, there's research to support that. So yeah, it's, it's not fair and it's not fun to talk about, but it's also not an, it's, it's, we can't just ignore it either. Right. And so, you know, uh, I've, I've stolen this line from somebody else, but Essentially, if parents wait until they're ready to talk about this stuff, it's likely too late, right? Because yeah. it's happening a lot earlier than they realize. 
Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not I, saying I, it to scare. It's just like, that's the reality of our situation. And so, um, I mean, I just got pulled in to do a, uh, a talk for 500 middle schoolers because sharing intimate images and sharing news without consent was, was rampant at the school. And so, you know, fortunately that school was recognized it and was comfortable bringing me in to talk about it. Middle schools usually don't want me coming in and talking about that stuff, but it's sort of like, I sort of look at it as like abstinence only sex education that does not work. Right. If telling kids to not have sex before they're 18, doesn't work and ensures that they're engaging in sex um, without knowing how to have safe sex. Right. And so we have sex education to say, Hey, you know, you, we don't want you doing this, but if you're going to do it, right. You know, here's how to do it safely. Well, it's the same thing with this stuff. Like you need to understand sending nudes or whatever they're doing. They need to understand how risky that is, you know, and then as kids get older, you know, sex sexting needs to be done safely too. If you're going to send a nude image to somebody else, you cannot have any idea. You cannot have your face in there, right? You can't have any identifying information so that if that image does get loose, the victim can say, that's not me. Or that's, they can have plausible deniability. That's a lot of information parents need to know about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and I, and I'm a parent, you know, like I don't, I, I, I get that it's not a fun conversation to have. It's just, you know, we live in this world now as a consequence of having all this amazing technology is, you know, put another way you know, the internet was not built for kids. No, shouldn't be growing up there unsupervised. And, and parents shouldn't feel bad about the way the state of affairs, it's not their fault. Right. But, you know, now we need to do make, as I say, make some small adjustments um, that will have big impact. Mm -hmm. Well, I even got a text from one of my son's friends in, in high school and it was it was pretty graphic and vile. And yeah. I'm like, he wouldn't send this to me. He's got the wrong person. So yeah. I texted back. I don't think your mother would like you talking to any woman or yeah. girl like this. Yeah. Then he realized he made a mistake and he was apologizing up yeah. and down. You know, I always. This is what I mean. That. Right. I they say things that. online they would never say in the physical world. Right. right. It's like Lord of the Flies, right? And so, and then when you inject some consequence or accountability, I don't think your mom would like this. They recognize that they've done something wrong. That's the thing that gets me, you know, if you never, if, if a trusted adult or a parent never gets involved in this online behavior, then it just go, runs rampant. But as soon as somebody says, hey, like, I don't think you want this getting public or your parent finding out, they're like, no, 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 yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. It's like, okay, so you know you're doing something wrong which is true for all kids. Like they make mistakes, they do stuff, but we have infrastructure in place to, to help guide them to become healthy, productive adults and not, you know, say, or these off, you know, say these things. And, you know, in that moment, like I would say, well, would you say that to somebody's face? And the answer is probably no, but that's not a read just because you, know, you shouldn't say things like that online just because you can't, right? If you wouldn't say it in the physical world, don't say it online, right? And these are the kinds of things I'm constantly echoing to, to kids. Yeah, I'm glad you are. I'm sorry, you have to do it all the time. <laughs> no, it's I'm, I love my work and I, I feel very lucky to 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 be doing it. So I, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. We, Professionally. We, well, we know more people like you going to schools and, and making parents 
not, you know, well aware of this. How can parents, you know, find out about this techsavvyparent.com? Yeah. So if you go to the techsavvyparent.com, um, you can find our information. You can sign up for our newsletter. Um, you can take the course. Um, and and then my other website is ntab.org, E-N-D-T-A-B.org. And that's for, which stands for End Technology Enabled Abuse. And that's, that's, that's where I do my work training, doing public speaking and professional development training for organizations that work with victims. Oh, I'm so glad we talked. Me too. <laughs> I'd like to have you back on again. Sure. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so, well, um, don't jump off. Uh, Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here in the future with Adam Dodge and other exciting guests. Thank you again, sir. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me and all the work that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And your work as well. (laughs) 